Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Funds, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafunds.com to join the community. Today is January the 14th in 2023, and my guest is Scott Beyer. Scott is a journalist and consultant and the owner of the Market Urbanism Report, a think tank that advocates for free market city policy. Scott Beyer is traveling around the world right now for one and a half years to document how market urbanism can apply to developing world cities. So today we're going to hear about what's wrong with cities, how can we improve them, and Scott is going to give us some colorful insights from his travels from the first six months in Latin America, looking at existing and at new cities. So towards the end, we're going to hear his report on startup cities that Scott has been visiting and that he's planning to visit in the future. So Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nicholas. Scott, what would you like listeners to know about you and your background besides what I already said? That can help us understand who you are and what your work is about. Yes, I spent about uh, years as an urban policy journalist, really focusing on United States um, urban issues. And I actually had a, a very similar tour in the mid-2010s, from 2015 to 2018. I did a similar tour around the U.S. where I lived in 30 different major U.S. cities for about a month each to get a sense of their of the issues and ills that plagued them. And uh, it feels like such a long time ago because in a lot of ways, even though I was a market-oriented thinker back then, the solutions to a lot of urban issues have really changed in my mind and have moved more towards the emergent urban or startup city philosophy, which we can get up to that later. But so, yeah, that's the pretext for why I took this cross-global trip is that I, I began really native to the U.S. and focusing on U.S. issues. And I thought that having a, having a tour of global sound would broaden my coverage of urban issues from a market perspective. So I'm on a 1.5-year tour where I'm spending half a year in Latin America. That was last year half a year in Africa and half a year in Asia, really studying developing world issues. And so I'm currently calling from Cape Town, quite literally day one of my Africa, of the Africa leg of this trip. Amazing. I'm keen to talk to you again six months later and talk about Africa and then another six months later to talk about Asia and see how your thinking yeah. develops. So interesting what your journey is about. How did you get to start the Market Urbanism Report? At what point did you get the insight that's the vehicle for you to, to promote your ideas? Market Urbanism was a movement before I began Market Urbanism. So I don't know if you're familiar with the new urbanism concepts, but it's the idea that you bring neo-traditional design to 
to modern cities. And new urbanism is similar in the sense that there's not just one person talking about new urbanism. There's a lot of different organizations and they all sometimes get together for a conference. Um, market urbanism is kind of the same way. Back in 2008, there was an original market urbanism blog called marketurbanism.com. And there were different people not even affiliated with that that were talking about theory. Market urbanism report is something I launched in 2017 and it was just designed to expand the market urbanism coverage to a different set of issues. And, and really just further promote the idea. Yeah, let me explain what market urbanism is. I think the bumper sticker version would be mixing free market policy and urban issues. Um, a more thorough explanation could be the use of classical liberal ideology to be applied to specifically urban issues like housing and transportation. The specific focus of market urbanism report has been, say, two different things. So... On one hand, and this was really the earlier focus, it was how can marketer, how can these free market ideas be applied to existing city contexts, such as a Berlin or a New York or a San Francisco? And I, I think that version of market urbanism is not full-on libertarianism or anarcho-capitalism because you're not going to go into those cities and say completely privatize the transport or abolish zoning because. That's not politically realistic in those places. So that early version of market urbanism was more along the lines of what are some criminal, more, more modest reforms that can push in that direction to be used in existing cities. Where my thinking has evolved is a different version of market urbanism that does ask questions like, how could a fully libertarian or an anarcho-capitalist concept be applied to a city? And that's where I think a startup city model is more of a blank slate for that kind of thing, because it is literally just you assemble Greenfield property and you try to win autonomy from your host government and then you just run the city however you want. And so it, to me, that resembles a more fully privatized model. So those are two different versions of market urbanism that can be applied in two different contexts. Great. It's interesting that first you traveled so many American cities. So maybe you can give our listeners a bit of a sense of what's wrong with cities. I mean, I've recently visited San Francisco and LA and, you know, it's many things seem kind of seem obvious that they're wrong, but like, why? So yeah, when I was traveling around in these 30 different cities, the common denominator that really inflicted all of them was high home costs. This idea that people want to live in cities because that's where the jobs are, but they're not because of various regulatory problems, they're not building up housing to house it. A very specific U.S. problem, and I don't know if it's unique necessarily, but it's more specific to the U.S. than anywhere else I've been, and that's the idea of sprawl. Just the fact that people cannot, cities can't organically grow the way the market would have them grow because they're regulated in such a way that everybody is forced to spread out and live in suburbs. And so then that creates all kinds of traffic problems, environmental problems, and just quality of life problems associated with long commutes and isolation and things like that. So that would be one specific U.S. problem. And then we have the more standard ones that you'll hear on the news, like the crime situation and the homelessness and bad public schools. I say, when you ask why, I think it all gets down to the basic public choice flaws of a lot of, of, a lot of the governance in these cities, like in the case of the housing issue specifically, it's the public choice flaw is the fact that you have an incumbent interest 
meaning existing homeowners who benefit from a housing shortage because it elevates the price of their, of their own housing. So they lobby for special regulations that prevent housing, more housing built in their neighborhoods. And uh, that, that burdens people who don't own homes and it helps people who do own homes. Yeah, that's, and that's interesting. And I think it's not apparent to someone who's not familiar with U.S. policy. When I visited the United States for the first time, I think even many Americans aren't aware that that sprawl is not inevitable. What are the kind of policies that lead to that sprawl of like single family homes and units? I'd say uh, 80% of it is the zoning that I had mentioned before. So for example, even in San Francisco, which you think of as being as like one of the most in-demand cities where there would be very much of a market for building up in that city. If you look at the zoning code, like 75% of San Francisco city proper is owned either for single family or it's owned for something that very much resembles single family, such as like duplexes or triplexes. That kind of answers your question. Why would, why would a place like San Francisco sprawl? I think if 75% of the city is zoned for that. And then once you go beyond that, once you go to the suburbs, you often have rural zoning. So in theory, even suburban areas could be built up if they're close to city. But if you have large lot zoning, that says an individual house can only go on a large lot of lands that naturally is going to, is going to cause a, a dispersed settlement pattern. There's actually multiple factors, but I'd say the other big factor would just be our transportation policy. We dumped a lot of money and state power into this idea that different areas can be condemned for road way. And we basically build a bunch of subsidized rooms out to suburban areas. So. The human behavior followed. I mean, once you provide something for free and, and subsidize and give it all kinds of government benefits, then people are going to use it. And so we could have used our roads for pedestrians or things like that. But instead, in a lot of cases, we went into cities and widened the roads for one-way automobile traffic. So you're incentivizing a certain behavior. Yeah. And just to draw the full picture of what is zoning. Right. So zoning is like cities and municipalities simply laying out a plan, right? In this zone, you can have kind of retail units. In that zone, you can have single family housing units, right? So zoning in most cases dictates the use and the density of different land parcels. So a given parcel, again, to use the San Francisco example, a given parcel might be able to have three units. It can't have residential, I, I'm, excuse me, it can't have retail. It can only be used for residential. Yeah, zoning writ large going across the entire city is dictating density of specific neighborhoods and usage of specific neighborhoods. And the way the zoning is written in the U.S. is often covering very wide swaths. <clears throat> so you have the office over here and you have the retail over here and you have the residential here. Oftentimes, like the zoning for entertainment districts. So that's why all the nightlife is in one spot. So yeah, it's a regime that, that dictates the density and the use of different areas. And then I think it's accompanied by a lot of other regulations that are similar. So you might have regulations need how much parking can go on a specific lot. And that's, that's called minimum parking requirements. Things that might not have to do with zoning, but are adjacent to it are things like setbacks. So how far can a property 
how far must a property be set off of the uh, public right of aesthetic review, historic review, architectural review. They're all sort of regulatories that determine how cities look and function. Yeah, exactly. Like when I compare it to my own experience in Europe, we, as far as I know, don't have zoning. We have a lot of other bad housing policies, right? So in Berlin, where I am, we have a lot of like rent controls and it's also very hard to build new things. All things that are making it harder to build new housing, reducing the supply there by increasing the price, benefiting existing homeowners or incumbents. Even though it's sometimes argued as, oh, it's in favor of the people who want to rent, right? By keeping the prices low for them, which kind of has the opposite effect, right? So our intuitions when it comes to public policy and city policy of most people is wrong, right? So that's often what's leading to cities choosing very bad policies, right? Plus sort of the incentive by incumbents to keep newcomers out, right? So San Francisco is a very desirable place to move to. It has network effects. has a very high density of opportunity, of capital and of very smart people, but it makes it very hard to, to build new housing, which sort of drives the price up because demand is really high and supply is kept artificially low. But one thing I sometimes wonder about is about transport, right? Because in Europe, to me, the transportation seems to be pretty good when I compare it to other places. We have a lot of buses, like we have a lot of good rails, good trams, flights are very cheap. So there's a lot of availability also of micro-mobility within cities. So that's just sometimes surprising to me. Why is that, has that not developed in the United States as much? Yeah, transportation is really the second leg of, of what I study in market report. And part of it is just, we don't have the natural advantage of being a dense, of being dense cities. Like we've owned in such a way that our cities look and function a certain way. And then that informs our transportation because transportation and the housing really go hand in hand. But there are additional points beyond that. I think some of the reason is that the U.S. has uniquely corrupt transportation bureaucracies. And this is something that nobody has given a true answer as to why this is, but and then nobody really knows. But for example, if you look at, if you look at the per kilometer cost of building an underground subway in New York and San Francisco, compared to many like socioeconomically similar cities in Europe, our prices are way higher and nobody really knows why, but we just, have, we have a lot of municipal corruption. We have bad contracts. We have union labor that, that really drives up the price of construction. And so the bottom line is we can't get the same bang for our buck on transportation infrastructure that we do in other parts of the world. I think another aspect, and this may or may not apply to Europe, but I think it does apply here, is from my perspective as a free market thinker, I believe that a lot of transportation can be solved by the private sector. For example, we have different initiatives for different companies to try to roll out bus service in New York and San Francisco and various others. A lot of them still operate in the shadows illegally. And so my thing has always been that if we just liberalize this industry and said that anybody who wants to can operate a bus, we would have a bunch of little for bus services going all over the city. But as it is now, that's largely a non-existent industry because it's simply, there's all kinds of protectionist rules that exist in these cities that they try to protect the existing public transit monopoly and they don't want the private sector getting involved. In this industry. So particularly curious about buses. So it's very hard to start a new Greyhound bus. 
in the United States? No, it's hard to a degree because I think there are a lot of the protectionist regulations that we're talking about applied, but so there's two different kinds of bus modes. There's in, intercity and there's intra-city. So intercity is between city, between different cities, and that's something like Greyhound. And we have a fair amount of innovation in that field in the sense that there's things like Chinatown bus. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's in New York City. A set of different New York City services that go between, between New York and D.C. And they're even cheaper than Greyhound. We have some Flix bus, which is began in Europe and then gradually transported into the U.S. and is now being used here. The level of innovation for intercity inter buses is pretty good, actually. And, and the private, it's a great example of where the private sector has produced a lot of competition and cheap fares between cities. Where I'd like to see more innovation and where instead we get a lot more regulation is the intercity bus. Bus systems that operate within cities and effectively with mass transit. I think there's a whole wave of innovation that could be happening there that does not, because that's usually where it gets regulated. And there's basically the nature of the regulations are that people are worried about how are these different services going to use existing curb space because curb space is already quite competitive, the usage of in cities. And they're worried about these services poaching, poaching from the municipal lines and everything. So a lot of it is, a lot of it is concerns of way and the tragedy of the common that comes from a lot of different competition happen in this space. But I'm just saying that if we did let the market work, have this just as we have a lot of interesting businesses. Yeah, yeah. Just one interesting observation that's something you said. A lot, very often we just don't know what's going on within these regulatory bodies or these municipal bodies or how these decisions are made. It's very, just very complex and like a patchwork. And also it just seems to me, just also from my experience for this podcast, it's very hard to like talk to politicians or regulators who are making these decisions because they don't want to talk in public, right? So several, I tried actually at the beginning of my podcast, I wanted to have an open discussion also with policymakers and regulators, but it's just very hard to get them, right? They just yeah. like to be in the shadows. And I heard from several other people, they tried to get like people from the FDA to talk to them and have an open dialogue, but didn't. Do you have any observation from your research or your journalistic work on getting these kinds of insights of how these bodies really work? Ultimately, they're, they answer to their constituents. That's who elects them and that's who keeps them employed. Yeah, I've had a similar experience. I just started a consultancy, actually, that, that is eventually going to be designed to meet with and talk with the public officials to try to lobby them in a sense. And so I guess we... Couple of years from now, we can see how successful that initiative was. But I guess my experience more is just an app is public officials are super interested in these ideas, especially if they're, they're so tier to what we talk about on the day to day. And they're also, at the end of the day, they want to stay. And so whatever their constituents think is what they think. And they're not necessarily ready to do really innovative ideas because that comes with a political risk to them. Great. So let's talk more about your six-month trip through Latin America. What were, what's the first, what was your travel route and how did you decide on that one? I'm from Virginia. So my first stop was Mexico City. And then from there, I went down through Central America and parts of South America, actually the into South America. So Brazil, 
Uruguay, Argentina. And then I went up the Western half of South America, so Chile and Peru and Ecuador. It was 14 stops in total in 12 different countries. I think overall, I love Latin America. It's a great area of the world. It'll be interesting to see, like, this is day one in Africa. We're, li we're literally talking right now on my first day in Africa. And so it'll be interesting after six months of going through about the same number of countries and stops in Africa, if my takeaways are similar to Latin America. But overall, yeah, I just, there's something about Latin America that just like gels with me. And I don't really know what it is, but I think it's just, it's like the, the urbanism, it's the music, it's the food, it's like the people are really friendly. It's just a great place. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I spent like 80% of my time in Central and Latin America for the past two and a half years. And exactly the things you said, like it has this magic about it, right? I'm, I love Mexico City. It would have been really hard for me to do your trip because I would have, my <laughs> first stop, I wouldn't have left Mexico City probably. But that was a problem. I, actually, I overstayed. There were several stops where I literally did overstay, caused me to have to reduce my time at other stops. For me, that was Medellin, Colombia. That was just one where I stayed for three weeks because it was just, it was such a great place. Oh man, I haven't been there yet, but I just hear, I keep hearing about it. So I think we're going to go there sometime this year, <laughs> but it's probably very hard for you to decide, but what were the first, the highlights of your trip that come to mind? I'd say a lot of the reason for, a lot of the reason for this trip along with just being a journalism trip is it's also part of it's an investing trip. Like. I'm an investor and I, I'm interested in particularly these parts of the world that I'm going to. And the reason being is that I think a lot of the West, quote unquote, the Western world that we think of as like the U.S. and Canada and, and Europe, I think there's some real, some real structural problems with that, those economies that come from having just grown their government too much. Look at the situation in the U.S. and printing money crazy. We have structural death at work. You can just look at it and tell we're going to be able to pay this. And so I think there's a real financial thing that is building in the United States. And so a lot of the themes of why I'm traveling is because I want to find new markets and new countries that, that I'm not used to that could potentially have a better long-term upside from an investing standpoint than companies and various entities in the U.S. So I'm particularly look, looking at real estate. And when you look at I'd say when you talk about the highlights of the trip, there were two real estate genres, and we can go over them one by one, that really stuck out to me in Latin America. So the first one is this idea of the Barrio Tropical, and that's a term I invented that means tropical neighborhood, and, and it's basically neighborhoods that, that have really invested in their public realm and become like really green and burning and tropical. And then the second theme that I'm really interested in, which I know you frame in this area as well, is the startup cities. Yeah, let's talk about these two. I'm curious about the Barrio Tropicals. Yeah. So can you explain what that is? And also I'm curious, because I think I know what you're talking about from sort of Condesa or Roma in Mexico City. Is that what you were talking about? So it's interesting that you bring it up because when I first went to Condesa, I said, this is the type of neighborhood that I've never seen before. Never seen a neighborhood that looks like this because it's like, yeah, let me define what a Barrio Tropical is. It's a, it's an urban neighborhood that has an old urbanism, traditional aesthetic that dedicates a lot of its right of way to multimodal aspects, not just the automobile. 
that's clean, safe, and cosmopolitan. So all of those criteria would fit a lot of neighborhoods, like a lot of the U.S. and European neighborhoods fit those definitions. But the thing that makes them a boring cow is they also have, they're also absolutely a walking river. And so it, it feels like when you're walking through them, like you're almost walking through a jungle. And these are neighborhoods that are in the middle of big cities, and they have the urban in every aspect, but they, there has been such a dedication to plant life that they just feel tropical. And so there's really two people who, two entities that I think drive the Barrio Tropical concept. One of them is just the fact that the city government itself has committed a lot of space in the public right of way to greenery. So just to use Kavita as an example, there's big medians that are, that effectively serve as parks and they have these big mature trees and there'll be big street trees along the sidewalks. So, you know, a lot of little pocket parks that, that really add to the greenery as well. So one ask, one element of that is the commitment by the city government to make the area verdant. But the other angle to that is what the private sector does. So what I find in these neighborhoods is that whether you're an apartment building or you're a retail storefront, they often try to make themselves very green as well because they're trying, they're trying to make themselves look more attractive than the next. So when you have all these different public or excuse me, private sector entities competing with one another to try to look as green as possible. And then also the public realm has been made that way as well. Then it's like this collective uh, calia that just exists through the whole condensed and Roma, I would say would be the combination. But found is that if you go to the richest old neighborhoods in any of these countries, you'll see, you'll find a barrio tropical. I found 14 in total. And I even have a Facebook post ranking them because you, I found one in Guatemala City and there were two in Medellin actually. And there was one in Brazil and, or excuse me, Rio de Janeiro. Like there were one of these in almost every country that I went to. And so I want to, I want to eventually rank these and chronicle them and possibly even do like an investment fund that tries to, people who are interested in these types of concepts can sink money into barrio tropicals. Yeah, it's fascinating. So it must have a longer cultural history, if you're saying that you see them in all sorts of different places and they've been existing for a long time, richer neighborhoods, we get, we able to get behind the history of how they came about specifically? So that can be very tough. It can be very tough to find the historical context behind a lot of these. But what I found is that a lot of times they began as like these first suburbs of the city center. So a lot of Latin American cities began as, well, it was similar to the U.S. in a lot of ways, where what we think of as the Centro began as just, that was the entire city. And we're talking about centuries again. And then people would want to, people who were wealthy would want to settle outside of the Centro and say, so they would start these trunks that effectively functioned as like lush suburbs. And so they would plant the trees and plant the medians and all that kind of stuff. And then the cities eventually annexed the first suburbs and they just became part of the city. So it was a similar thing in the U.S. We used to have our streetcar suburbs that eventually got annexed. And they have a new traditional design, to, but without all the trees. So the so while some of those barrios bar, barrios tropicales are older and represent like older first suburbs, 
There are, some of them are more modern, Elkin Grejo in Panama City. It was part of a, a more recent initiative to like basically have a road diet. So Argentina Avenue used to be just a main traffic thoroughfare and they built a median and planted a bunch of trees and they built bike lanes and all that kind of thing. So now it's much more green and that was, so that was a more modern initiative and it just shows that cities can create barrios tropicales out of what previously was something much worse. Did you change your mind on some of your previous beliefs? So does it mean that it's possible that cities and city governments can make the right choices? Yeah, I think cities can do it, but the likelihood of cities, of most cities actually doing that and creating, creating good neighborhoods out of bad is probably unlikely, which I think brings me to my second, the second real estate genre that I was, that I've been really interested in as I travel around. And that is the idea of startup cities. And I'm defining startup cities as anything where a private company assembles land and tries to tries through market forces and private sector solutions, tries to build and operate a city that is for profit. So Brasilia so, and Abuja don't count. No, definitely not. And most, most municipal cities around the world do not count because they are municipal. They're democratic run. They're run by political actors who don't necessarily have a profit incentive and in seeing the city itself be profitable. And so even it even overlaps with the Barrio Tropical because a lot of the startup cities that I was visiting, like literally their main sales pitch when you talk to them is we have nice streets that are not automobile oriented, like they're safe for the pedestrian. We planted all kinds of trees along them. And we, we wrote a master plan that has a bunch of parks. So it was interesting because that just told me that the private sector is actually moving in this direction of the Barrio Tropical, whereas it's, I think it's very difficult for a city government to pull the same thing off. Yeah, B before we get to startup cities, because I want to spend some time talking about that, can you compare and contrast the problems that Latin American major cities have compared to the, say, the United States? So what, so they do that one thing right, Bios Tropicales, what's going wrong in many cities in Latin America? How are they faring? I think it's a lot of the same problems and it comes from the same public choice flaws. Some of it is high housing prices. Like there, the housing there is not expensive to people such as myself who are from the U.S. and are used to, to using the U.S. dollar. But for people who live and make money in Latin America, they're not necessarily going to be able to afford a normal standardized house in a nice neighborhood. What you're seeing is you're seeing a lot of slum development, which is just the people having to respond to the high home prices by just building something makeshift for themselves. Another problem that you see is crime. And that overlaps a lot with a lot with the housing issue, because once people build these inform like groups of people will build these informal slums or favelas, and then there's no governance there. So they just become overtaken by gangs and gangs effectively serve as the government in a lot of these places. Crime problems, high home costs, a lot of government corruption as well, like the inability to provide certain nice things because it's the money is getting stolen by different bureaucrats. Great. So let's talk about startup cities. You said there's about how many you plan to visit for your whole trip and how many did you already visit in Latin America? And can you tell us a bit about them? I'm hoping to visit 40 to 50 during the whole trip. And I visited 10 in Latin America. And I think that 
kind of the central sales pitch of a startup city is that it is producing a competitive alternative to the existing municipal paradigm. So if people do not want to live in a traditional city for all the reasons that I mentioned, high crime, high taxes, bad schools, high home costs, the list goes on, just all around poor management. The promise of the startup city is to offer something different for them. So I can give you one example, one very tangible example. There's a startup city called Viva Park Portobello in Southern Brazil, where the person, and I was giving a tour with, I was being given a tour by the person who owns and is managing it and building it. And he said that one of the central clients that he's getting are Brazilians who had moved to the U.S. because they had money and they were so worried about people breaking into their homes that they literally got out of Brazil and just moved to a different country. And now they're going to move back and live in this Viva Park because Viva Park is promising better privatized security. So for example, they even have facial recognition at the entrance of the city. I, I don't know if I'd want to live in a city like that, but you can understand the appeal of that to somebody who literally had to flee their country because they were so scared of crime. In another private city or startup city that I went to in Panama, they were just talking about how if you live in Panama City, the Barrio Tropical aside, most of the city is very dangerous from a, an automobile perspective. Like their drivers are just crazy there and they take up like they take up all the space and they're polluting and they're honking and they're kind of like just destroying the right of way all through Panama City. And his essential promise was you can come live in our startup city called Porta Norte, and we're going to have like very narrow streets that cars are basically mandated to drive slow on, and we're going to have parks and we're going to have street trees. And so it's going to be a night and day alternative from the experience of living in Panama City. Great. So these are two in Brazil and in, and in Panama. Where are the other six, the other eight that you visited? They all have different things, but I went to Michitoya Pacifico in Guatemala City or outside of Guatemala City. And that's very much designed, that's designed to be an industrial city that houses the poor rural working class of Guatemala. I went to Kayala, which is a new urbanist. I don't know if you know about that, but that's... I've been there. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> it's technically in Guatemala City, but it was given a lot of autonomy to... As you can see, it's built very differently than your typical city. And so it was given all kinds of regulatory autonomy. And that's why I classify it as a startup city. Two in Honduras, Morazan and Prospera. Pedro Branca, which is outside of Florianopolis, Brazil. And that's the same concept. It was one of the more further along ones that I visited. That is a new urbanist city that was built outside of Florianopolis that is effectively serving as its own city now. It has the full retail imprint. It has a major anchor employer, all that. Let's see. Porta Norte, as I mentioned, in Panama City. Gerrera International, which is also outside of Florianapolis. And that's really interesting because that was the case of a private company buying half of a, half of a municipality and deciding that they were going to manage this half of the municipality on their own, separate from the existing one. So it was really interesting to pair the two sides of the municipality. Another one that I visited but was not able to find the actual site is something called DMCC Cartagena. And that was DMCC is a conglomerate that helps to operate Dubai. And they're now trying to export their model around the world. They're, they want to assemble land and build like a port city in Cartagena, Colombia. 
I went there, but because they haven't disclosed the actual where it's going to be located, I wasn't able to see exactly where it was going to be. But I did visit like a lot of the where a lot of the other Zona Francas are getting built around Cartagena, and uh, got a sense of like where it will likely go. Fantastic! My listeners obviously know about Prospera because mm -hmm. that's been the topic of many debates, so many discussions so far. That I'm living there. What was your impression on site when you were visiting? Well, Prospera would currently, so I mentioned that I was going to be ranking these different startup cities and I'm still developing a formula to rank them, but I'm pretty sure that Prospera will be number one. And there's a couple reasons for that. I think the main one is that I think the Zeti law is the single hand and best special economic zone that I have studied just in this, from the standpoint of, um, you know, a lot of these other special economic zones and Zona Francas and Zona Libres that I was coming across are specifically designed for industry and are very, for some reason, they like a lot of the places where they open up, do not want them mixing residential with industry. And so what you get is you'll get these big like smokestack towns that are inside the Zona Franca. And then you'll get all these slums that surround the Zona Franca where people come and occupy and basically form illegal settlements. And so I think to me, that doesn't seem like an ideal social model. And so I think really the promise of the ZA and Morazan would be a, another example of where they're specifically trying to do this is this idea of, yeah, you have the industry in the city, but then you also have modern standard standardized housing that the workers can live there. So I really like the ZETI law because it's not just trying to create like an industrial zone. It's trying to create, it's, it's positioned in such a way that you can build a whole city using the ZETI law. So I like Prospero because it has a good, like the autonomy of the Zeti law is excellent in my mind and really puts it above all the others. But then the other reason I like Prospero is they really just found a great piece of land. I think the whole amenity and atmosphere matters. And so looking out over the ocean, tropical islands, beautiful palm trees, and like kind of this cool vibey tourist town. I think it, they really found something good there, I think. Yeah, for sure. I love it there. And I also think they were able to attract like a good mix of people, right? I always say there's three kinds of constituents. One is locals, right? So that, that are from the island, from neighboring cities and villages, towns and villages that are working there as service workers, security guards, drivers, teachers, and then educated Hondurans from the mainland to whom it's like an alternative to going like to the United States or to a country where they have more opportunity. And third, it's open to internationals like myself, mm -hmm. right, to co-create that kind of environment, which I'm very glad about. Um, Morazan, I haven't talked about as much on the podcast, but I also think they're doing really great work there. They're specifically designed to attract or the value proposition is to local blue-collar workers. It's in one of the most dangerous parts of the country in Chiloma, and they're providing affordable housing and basic security service. So I was also visiting it last year and it's a really great community that they're building and very badly needed. Totally agree that Honduras really has the most interesting and best framework for the development of these cities. Yeah, I'd have to say from an investing standpoint, Prospera stuck out to me much more than Morazan, although I like both of them. But this idea, that the third demographic you mentioned of having the international, you know, you think of like, what caused Dubai to be such an economic success? Everybody who's a millionaire and wants to have a low tax, but it just seems like Dubai has done a great job of attracting the jet setter class. 
of people who are going to bring a lot of money who aren't necessarily going to cause a lot of problems and really just want to be left alone. And that seems to be a very good model for creating a wealthy city. And so when I visited Prospera, I got those vibes, just the type of people who um, were walking around and who I saw, like I actually went to a, an opening party they had for that resort. And just the types of people there gave off this sense of these are upscale European kind of highly cultured types of people who have a lot of money and probably have a lot of like interesting ideas that they're going to bring to the city. And obviously that's very different than Morazan, which is dealing with a completely different type of demographic. But I think that aspect of Prospero is really going to make it thrive. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is like, I organized four conferences there last year. And I think the value proposition is also very good for entrepreneurs from Honduras, from the mainland, mm -hmm. right? Because it's a massive pain to use the formal institutions to start a business, right? Honduras hasn't had a single VC investment, even though it's a country with 10 million people. So when you do a startup, a business, especially when you're in technology, there's like very little going on there. So during those conferences, I think 40 or 50% of attendees were Honduran entrepreneurs like from Sula or Tegucigalpa. And for them, it's like, it's really been amazing. Many of them are planning to move there or to start a business. So that's where really where I see a lot of potential, right? So if for Prospera, but if also we can replicate that model in other places in Latin America, right? So Latin America is already experiencing a boom in technology, right? So um, VC didn't start in for like 2011. Uh, a friend of mine was actually the first, started the first VC in Latin America. And now I think last year it was around $15 billion that were invested into technology companies in Latin America. But what's really holding a lot back is that it's very hard to use the formal institutions to build great companies, right? So. It's very complex and takes a lot of legal costs to have proper domiciles, right? So many have to do with a triple structure where they use like Cayman Islands companies plus a Delaware C Corp plus a local entity. And it's very hard to get the banking sorted for that kind of setup, right? That is something where I think more startup cities can innovate and in providing a better business environment and attract local entrepreneurs. I think that's that has big potential. Have you seen what were the, what was the vibe when it comes to, when it comes to, when it comes to entrepreneurs in Latin America, where have you tapped into some of these? A little bit, but there was different, there's like different little hubs of where you would think of as being the tech hub of respective countries. Like, for example, I went to a park, a business, an office park in Florianopolis, where apparently like that was the main it's called Paseo Primavera, where it was like the main tech hub for all of Brazil. And it was just this little office park. But overall, I can't, I'm probably not as well versed on it as you are because it's not really my focus. But yeah, it was also just interesting to see like the different companies that are popping up in Latin America. For example, Rappi being this, this, this food delivery that is presumably competing and in my opinion, out-competing in the region, companies like Uber and Uber Eats and Didi. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting, right? Really, it's just institutional innovation that can unleash the power of really of entrepreneurs, right? In the United States, mm -hmm. really, like Delaware companies, Delaware companies, plus like Silicon Valley culture, safes, and that's it, right? So once you yeah. have like proper domiciles and solid legal structures and environments, you can take off. I'm really fascinated by the financial center 
that Prospera is launching mm -hmm. as well. Just because I think ultimate, like I, I would think the ultimate goal there would be to have a place where people can list their publicly traded companies. Trying to issue an IPO in the U.S. is a multi-million dollar process that goes that you're dealing with all kinds of what I view as protectionist regulations from the SEC. And so it would be very interesting for people. It would be, it's difficult for people just to list IPOs in the U.S. on the NASDAQ or the NYSE unless they're really well capitalized. It'd be fascinating if Prospera had its own stock listing, just as Singapore does. And if you want to have a publicly traded company, you go there. Yeah, that's a great idea. But also these questions, how to interoperate between Latin American and American capital markets, some of the discussions that I have on a daily basis, right? And it could be so valuable also for the United States, right? So with kind of increasing like political fragmentation, supply chain disruption to build Latin America up as a better kind of trading partner, increase the interoperability of like capital flows, make it easy for startups from Latin America to IPO locally and then have access to American capital markets. But a lot of things that are obviously very challenging and decision makers don't have the right incentives, but I'm very optimistic when I see things like Prosper and when I see the entrepreneurial tech ecosystem in Latin America thriving. There's just so such massive potential. There's 600 million people and entrepreneurial talent is equally distributed, right? So if we build better institutions, we can just unleash so much of it. Yeah. And right. I like your idea of having multiple Prosperous style cities, but they might not all be under the Prospera brand, but the idea of having different Zetes around Latin America should clarify like the startup not every startup city that i visited is any sort of special economic zone like the thing that causes them to be a startup city from my perspective is simply they're private and they're for-profit and they were allowed to have some level of autonomy to build a unique type of city but a majority of them are not zetas or any other type of special economic zone so i think that's the real golden goose because not once you not only have your own land use autonomy, but you have your own ability to set tax and regulatory rates. That's what's really going to make those places attractive. So a lot of my listeners are entrepreneurs from some are from Latin America, many are from the United States or from Europe. What are the most interesting places to go to in Latin America for a young digital nomad? What are your kind of top five? Well, it's funny because I just ranked. Um, I just ranked. The cities that I went to, the 14 different stops. Mm -hmm. And of course, my ranking is based on a land use, urbanism. The thing that makes me think one city is better than the other is based on its architecture and its planning and that kind of stuff. But if so, with that said, I think the top five, just from a purely lifestyle standpoint, I'm going to say number one is Rio, number two is Medellin, three is Mexico City. And those are like the hardcore three. What you do, what you go from there can be subjective, but Santiago, Chile was also great. And uh, Ceres, Argentina, I'd say those would be my top five. As far as which one is best from, from like a regulatory standpoint, that's going to be different. I don't think it would be Brazil, even though it, even though Rio was my number one. Chile seemed to have the most, it, it has the, Ch Chile has the highest economic freedom rates in Latin America. And in fact, it has an economic freedom rate that is equal to the United States. So that's really interesting because most people probably wouldn't know that. Chile has the highest per capita GDP, I believe, of any Latin American country, very wealthy workforce. And I'd say from just my street level view, 
Santiago was like the most modern, advanced kind of city that I went to in Latin America, just from a perspective of if you want to see a lot of brand new glossy buildings and a lot of new construction and cranes going up everywhere, Chile, Santiago, Chile was more like that than any other Latin American city I went to. It had less graffiti, it had less seeming crime, it, it had more clean, upscale public spaces. And I'd say from a street level view, but also from a statistical standpoint, Santiago might be the best place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I myself spent a lot of time in Mexico City. I really love it. Something that also encouraged young entrepreneurs to do, especially if you're in the United States and Europe with a lot of inflation right now. And also when you start a new business, the first couple of years, it might not work. So you don't earn very much. So what really did it for me was saving up money. And then in Mexico City, you can cut cost of living by 80%. And that gives you plenty more runway to start a business. These places are really amazing. It's a great cultural experience. And anything you'd say to people who are thinking about making move like that, so from a sort of some of safety, getting around point of view, that's something that worries people often. Yeah, it's hard to overstate just how cheap these areas are. I mean, I would go as far as to say the cost of living might literally be one-tenth of what it is in the US. If you're comparing similar areas, like if you go to Mexico City or Santiago and compare that to the biggest cities in the US, like New York and Miami and LA, it might literally be one-tenth the living cost. And that is not an exaggeration. Just everything is so cheap. And it's like you say, so somebody, when they hear that, they say, they might say, what's the catch? Why is it only one-tenth the living cost? And I'm really not sure there is a catch because if you live in a nice neighborhood, you're not going to be dealing as much with the crime problem. And I guess it's, if you don't have to put your kids through the school system, if you're just a single, then you don't have to deal with that. So it, I don't know. It's kind of like in many cases, you're dealing with a better transit system. You're dealing with food that's just as good. You're dealing with neighborhoods that are just as good. The whole cultural experience, I, I'd say, is equal or greater than the best cultural experiences in the U.S., yeah. When I travel to the major American cities these days, let the American crazy. cities, yeah. Like San Francisco, like what the, yeah. like, and Mexico city doesn't have that. It's clean. It's fine. There's no homeless people roaming the street or addicts. Yeah. Right. And there is no catch. It's also perfectly safe. Right. Of course, don't do the tip, the like walk around alone at night or something like that, like anywhere. <laughs> That's like a common sense thing. Otherwise it's fine. I took a car, I was traveling around with my wife for more than a month. I've been on the roads of on our own, just with our car renting it. It's perfectly fine and safe in Mexico. Not everywhere. Ask before you go, right? In Guatemala or in Honduras, I would ask, okay, what regions can I go to and whatnot? But it's a, it's something that's just, there's not, there's no catch. Yeah. There was a thought leader on Twitter. I want to say in the libertarian space who was like, yeah, I just visited Mexico city for a week. And from what I can tell, everything is like one fifth the cost and the neighborhoods are nicer and there's people seem happier and there's all these great things about my stay there. And so I, I don't really understand. I don't really understand why more people aren't making the move. I don't get it. It's a, it's a great opportunity right now. Also with remote work to unbundle your life. Right. So where before say in the United States, you face these really high costs for like education and healthcare and housing, you can go to Latin America, build a community there, learn the language, adapt. Um, and then you just have much easier access to often much better options. 
And some of the things when it comes to education, you can also do remotely, but there's also great international schools in Mexico City and most of these places. The healthcare I got in Mexico City was amazing. Pay out of pocket, right? So 40% of Latin America has pay out of pocket healthcare, mm. right? So a lot of it is also low quality and informal, but also it opens a lot of space for innovation. So I found like super high tech, cheap healthcare in Mexico City. Mm. That was just way better than anything I've ever experienced before in the United States or Germany. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I can, I just really love to encourage people, check out Latin America, go to see Scott's work, his rankings and start unbundling your life. It's really worth it. And you can really optimize for so much and you just get the same kind of magical experience that, that Scott and I had. So what's next for you in Africa? What startup cities or what jurisdictions or countries are you most excited about visiting? I'm starting in South Africa and I'm moving my way further north, basically for the next six months. And then the, the final six months will be in Asia, starting in Dubai and seeing some Middle Eastern jurisdictions, but then going further east from there. Africa specifically, I think Lagos, Nigeria, just from the research I've done, seems to be the real hotbed for startup cities. I hear it's a cool city anyway. Like just the city itself is interesting and has become this African cultural capital. So that alone is going to make it a good stop. But if you go through the Adrianople Group startup city map, which is what is helping inform a lot of my route, you'll see like they have six or eight startup cities in Nigeria and most of them are around Lagos. Yeah, I plan to visit as many of those as I can. Yeah, I'm super excited to hear about a group that I'm communicating with frequently and I'm also an e-resident is Talent City in Lagos, Nigeria, in the <laughs> Lekki Free Zone. I think much of the physical environment is being built. I think they plan to open in early 2024, but I think they have a really iconic team that is building it. I will have Iabu Yeji, one of the founders, also my podcast soon. He's like an iconic tech entrepreneur in Africa. He's built two tech unicorns. There's not that many in Africa, including the biggest one, Flutterwave. And he's just, he's younger than I am. He's 31 or 32. So that's a really impressive or the right kind of person to build something like that. And also he's thinking it as a model to kind of branch out and do multiple charter cities in other places in Africa. Right. So I think that's where kind of the model to unleash the local development there. So really excited to hear what you report, what do you report from Africa? So anything else you'd like to point listeners towards when it comes to your work? Um, well, I'd say the, if you want to follow my trip and see the day-to-day -day things that I'm discovering, go to Facebook and follow the market urbanism report, Facebook group, not the page, but the Facebook group. And that is an 11,000 person membership group that is full of people who are very interested in urban issues. They love to debate and discuss these types of things. And more to the point, I'm posting a new photo essay every single day on, on that group. It's mm -hmm. stuff right from the street of, of where I'm traveling through. Fantastic. Scott, it was really amazing to have you on the show to get your firsthand insights about new city developments and existing cities and the great opportunities they offer for entrepreneurs and nomads, but also for locals, for entrepreneurs to really unleash entrepreneurship and just find and build a better life for yourselves. I think Latin America and couldn't agree more has, it's just, it's just blown my mind over the past couple of years. And I'm really yeah. looking forward to seeing your work and talk again in six months about what you experience in Africa, where we see a lot of similar things happening. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Scott. Thank you, Nicholas. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.